I remember a friend of mine, um, a sound engineer, who in the 80s was working on some of the Bond films, and I think it was on uh, Living Daylights. He was, doing the, he was doing the music, and at a quiet moment in the recording session, he turned to some chap that was sat at the end of the mixing desk um, and started to make conversation and sort of said, well, so what's, what's your involvement with the film? And the chap turned to him and said, I'm James Bond. And it was Timothy Dalton. Of course, he'd never seen Timothy Dalton before. He was relatively unknown at that point. So a little bit of egg on face for my friend. I'll tell you another story. Uh, a while ago, I, I'm quite into bird watching. So there's something that's a little skeleton in my closet. Um, and I remember being on an island in Kenya. And this bird appeared that no one had ever seen in that part of Africa before. And it was extremely exciting. And people were flocking dare I say, from all over to come and see this bird and try and work out what it was. And um, I have this memory of chatting to this guy about what I reckoned this bird was and holding forth, and he was asking me questions about what I thought and why I thought this and that the other. Now, that doesn't sound totally outrageous until you realize that I was, I don't know, eight or nine, and this guy turned out to be one of the country's great birding experts. I mean, this was a guy that made Bill Oddie looked like an imbecile when it came to birds. I had no idea who I was talking to. And actually, I had no idea who I was in relation to him. And in many ways, that gives us a way into this passage. This passage opens with this story of Nicodemus having no idea who he's talking to. Um, in fact, this morning's passage really is... It says there's a story within a story within a story here. Um, on, on one level, there's the, there's the macro story of John's gospel, uh, which John uh, is uh, telling us about Jesus. We had that introduced to us last week by Richard. Do you have a listen to the podcast? Uh, he looked at pr- the prologue in John 1. Um, and he pointed out how John is, the, the book of John is not a sort of history textbook. John, is, John comes with an agenda. He comes with the agenda of helping us understand who Jesus was and what he did and who we are and how we're to respond to him. So that's the sort of macro story. Then there's the next layer. I'm sorry if this sounds a little bit like Inception, but there's this next layer of story, uh, uh, which is this story of Nicodemus. And in many ways, that, this story functions as a case study for what we've already learned in John chapter 1. Um, and then there's this third story, which is about a snake on a stick in the desert, which sounds completely random, but is in fact the pinnacle of the whole story, um, which we'll come to. So, so that first level of story, the story of John, John's gospel, and how it's, he's unpacking who Jesus was, I just want to pick up a couple of threads uh, of that that we already learned about last week, as I said, to have a listen. Um, The first is that John identifies Jesus as being the light of the world, who gives life and who has come into the world uh, in the prologue, which is just a page back, well, two pages now, uh, in verse 4 of chapter 1. He says, in him, in Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And what we find is that John uses this idea of light and dark as a literary technique all through the book. Light and dark, night and day. He uses it to suggest, to imply a sense of acceptance and rejection of Jesus. Um, 
And we're using this as a very loose theme uh, for our series in John. So you'll notice next week we look at the story of the Samaritan woman in the next passage. Um, And it's important to notice that the passage happens at midday in the brightest of light. And that gives you a little hint that maybe that suggests something about what's going on in terms of the light of the world being accepted or rejected. Uh, We find that in other passages. And so keep an eye out for that as we go through how John uses this theme of light, uh, which we'll come back to in a minute or two. Uh, The other theme in John 1 that I just want to mention is this idea of rebirth that sits at the center of what John is trying to say. Whether, Whether we like it or not, we know that where we are born and the family we're born into has a big impact on the sense of status. If you're born in Twickenham as opposed to in Syria, that has a big impact on how the world values you rightly or wrongly, and I think we'd all agree probably wrongly. Um, But the story of John's gospel is a story of us being invited into rebirth, a story of being born into the greatest, highest status family that could ever exist, which is the family of God. And that is available to all who accept Jesus. Verse 11 of the prologue puts it this way. The light came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, and gave, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. So that's all we're going to say about that macro story for now. Uh, we're going to skip past Nicodemus. We'll come back to him in a minute. We're going to go to that third story about snakes in the desert. Let me just introduce that to you, because you may not be familiar with it. It's a story from the Old Testament, which Jesus refers to in uh, our passage. Um, It's in Numbers 21, if you want to have a look at it later. And I'm just going to summarize it for you quickly. The story is that the people of Israel are recently uh, rescued from slavery in Egypt. They've had this torrid time for generations and generations of being brutally abused by the Egyptians. And God has freed them. And they are now in the Sinai Desert, heading towards the Promised Land. But they start to grumble. They don't like the way their life has been set up by God. Um, and they, they start to complain and start to say, you know what, I'd rather be back in Egypt. And, uh, and what Yahweh, what God does, is he reminds them of what that actually would be like. He sends them Egypt, and he does it in the form of these venomous snakes. Uh, now, the snake is the symbol of Egypt, you know, the uh, Egyptian world is full of uh, snakes, and Pharaoh would have worn a snake on his, on his hat. Um, that uh, sense of uh, snakes being very deeply embedded as, a, as an image of Egypt. Um, but beyond that, the suffering and death that these snakes were causing, of course, evoked that sense of how that is exactly what was happening to them when they were in Egypt. And of course, the result is they realize uh, what a, what a terrible thing to have spoken against God's rescue and to have failed to be grateful and recognize what God has done for them. Um, and they cry out to God, and God offers them this rescue. He says, we're going to put a snake on a stick, and anyone who looks at that snake will be healed from uh, whatever snake bite they might have had. Um, and of course, that's a there's all sorts of ways in which that we find that story very difficult. Um, and, we'll, and we can talk about that 
after the service to come and chat. Um, but what we'll see in this passage in John is how, God, is how Jesus uses that idea to explain who he is, what he's come to do, and who we are and how we're to respond to him. So those are the two stories that sit outside and inside the story of Nicodemus. So let's look at Nicodemus for a few minutes. Um, one, one of the sermons I was listening to as I was preparing this was by this old-school, very independent school preacher uh, from central London who decided that we should shorten Nicodemus's name. And, of course, being a good public school boy, he thought, well, we'll call him Nickers. And he thought, no, maybe we shouldn't call him Nickers. And he suddenly realized, mid-sermon, what he, did, he just started talking about underwear. Um, so we won't call him Nickers. We'll, we'll uh, call him Nicodemus. Um, the first thing we hear about Nicodemus is that he is a Pharisee, uh, a member of the Jewish ruling council. This guy is a big cheese. Think of this as a bishop um, or a mayor or something like that. But what's really striking is this idea that he comes to him at night. Um, now, in a, in a world where there are no electric lights, night is a very dangerous time. You need a very good reason to be out and about in Jerusalem at night. Um, and it gives this sense of a, something secretive, almost maybe sinister, about Nicodemus's visit to Jesus. And there would have been quite a frisson down the backs of everyone in the house when they heard this knock at the door. Um, and, and we're supposed to notice that this whole conversation uh, with Nicodemus happens in the sort of half-light of a dim little candle vaguely lighting up the faces of Jesus and Nicodemus as they chat with the sort of looming shadows dancing on the wall behind, closer to darkness than to light. And, of course, this gloom is this metaphor. You know, as Jesus picks up the candle and walks to the door to open it to Nicodemus, he is coming to that which was his own, and his own was not going to receive him, at least within our story And as the two of them take their seats to start to chat, Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Because no one could do the things that you do uh, if God were not with him. And now there's a mark of respect there, that sense of rabbi um, and God being with him. Nicodemus is, is being respectful, but he is nowhere near understanding who Jesus is. That does not constitute any real recognition. Uh, what Jesus was doing and what is, what's happening to Jesus and through Jesus pointed to the fact that he was far more than that. This was the creator come into his own creation. Um, and instead, he gets labeled teacher, which is thoroughly patronizing, like me as an eight-year-old on that island in Kenya. Um, and, but of course, in some ways, we hear this kind of thing quite a lot, don't we? This idea that Jesus good man, good teacher maybe, but no more. And I just want to read to you something that C.S. Lewis wrote as he thought about that idea. This is from his book called Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a good moral teacher. 
He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he has a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So we have this sense that Nicodemus is coming in the dark because he just has completely misunderstood who Jesus is. And that begs the question, who do you understand Jesus to be? But also implicit in this is the idea that that Nicodemus also didn't understand who he himself was. Um, He knew he was an important guy. Um, He knew uh, that he worked hard to be good enough for God. Uh, He knew that he had good breeding. He had been born into the right family, uh, into the right nation of Israel. Um, And he would have assumed that basically every Jew was going to see the kingdom of God. Uh, Certainly he, at least, could could be totally confident that he was going to see the kingdom of God. But Jesus cuts to the chase. Uh, He says this, No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Which, of course, echoes that idea in John chapter 1, that those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Um, Nicodemus grabs uh, the slightly graphic wrong end of the stick and basically says, don't, don't be ridiculous, Jesus. A fully grown man can't climb back into their mother's womb. Um, Jesus clarifies for him that no one enters the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit. There's then, then a rather technical discussion that goes on and we're going to gloss over most of it just simply as a matter of time but I can certainly point you in directions to dig into it more deeply if you would like but Nicodemus's Old Testament knowledge would have pointed from this conversation to some key ideas Um, it would have pointed to the idea that this rebirth that Jesus is talking about in water is a water of cleansing Um, it's, it's connected to the idea of baptism there's that sense of being created anew, given a new heart. That sense that it is of the Spirit, it is entirely the initiative of God. Um, And also he would have had that sense from the Old Testament that this was a necessary part. This this rebirth is something that was talked about in the Old Testament and it was a necessary part of what the Israelites understood as coming to see the promised land, which is really the Old Testament language for the kingdom of God. Um, we'll, we'll skip over a lot of this. Suffice to say that Nicodemus finds it all rather far-fetched and a little bit hard to swallow. He's being told that he cannot control in his effort, in his uh, sense of status, whether or not he is good enough for God. Uh, Jesus eventually drives the point home uh, with the climax of the argument. And if you started to nod off, this is, the, this is the moment to wake up again. This is the crucial moment in the passage. Um, verse 14, we learn that this whole thing is only possible because of what is going to happen to Jesus. And he says this, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, 
that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life in him. That, of course, is the reference to the snake story that we talked about from Numbers. And Jesus' use of this story has a number of implications. Um, And some of these are quite difficult to say, and and they're quite difficult to hear as well. Um, But there is this sense that we are functioning as the Israelites in the story of the snake. We naturally reject God. We naturally reject his saving presence in our lives, just as Nicodemus was, in fact, doing. Um, And in our rejection of God, somehow uh, God has given us over to a life without that saving presence. There's something deathly and decaying about life. Um, And the problem there is that we are unable to do anything about that, just as the Israelites were unable to do anything about these snakes. And yet God offers us rescue. Um, He allows himself to be lifted up like that snake in the person of Jesus. Uh, It's a mysterious idea, but we have this sense of, of Jesus drawing into himself all of the venom of this world, all of the venom of this world's suffering, all the venom of our own wrongdoing into himself on the cross and offering us a new start, rebirth. Um, And of course we know from the rest of the story of John that he's talking about his own death. This is how uh, the uh, narrator continues in John. And these are the famous verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him, you might say, whoever looks to him for rescue, shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever looks to him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So Jesus asks Nicodemus to choose. There's that sense uh, that we too are being asked to choose. Uh, uh, Will we reject Jesus or will we accept him? Um, If we really want to live, live the fullness of life that God intended, all we have to do is look to Jesus and that ultimate expression of God's loving rescue in the cross. And of course, the story ends on a bit of a cliffhanger. We've seen that the narrator sort of zooms back out from this interaction, and we don't know what happens. We don't know whether Nicodemus creeps back out into the night in John's mind, or whether Nicodemus creeps out into the dawn of light. We don't know uh, whether he does, in fact, uh, look to the snake uh, in the desert on a stick and live. But as, as the story of Nicodemus, or the story of Jesus unfolds in the book of John, we find Nicodemus reappearing a couple of times. We find him coming to Jesus' defense against uh, the accusations of the Pharisees uh, in, in chapter 7. Later on, right near the end of the story, we find him again lovingly uh, embalming the body of Christ with expensive uh, uh, um, embalm, you know, uh, myrrh and uh, spices. Um, it seems as if 
Nicodemus was able to find that courage to see past his own assumptions about himself and about Jesus. So really consider the claims that Jesus was making and respond to them. Um, it would seem that he does eventually fix his gaze on, on the love of Christ in the cross. Um, and it, it would be remiss of me not to invite you to do the same. Um, it might be that that's not something you've ever done yourself personally. Uh, um, it might also be that you've done, you've, you did that years and years ago for the first time. But there's not that sense of that being a daily part of your life. He's not talking about a one-off event. Um, he's talking about that sense of the Christian life as looking to Jesus uh, for his uh, rescue. And so I just want to give us a, a minute or two just to be quiet um, and to consider what is the response that we should be making uh, to this. I'm going to uh, read a little extract from one commentator um, on this passage that just might help you to chew this over for yourselves. Believing is directing the heart's attention to Jesus. It is lifting the mind to behold the Lamb of God and never ceasing that beholding for the rest of our lives. At first this may be difficult, but it becomes easier as we look steadily at his wondrous person, quietly and without strain. Distractions may hinder, but once the heart is committed to him, after each brief excursion away from him, the attention will return again and rest upon him like a wandering bird coming back to its window. Father, you see uh, how easily our gaze wanders from that cross. How easily we take our eyes off the Son of Man lifted up. Pray that you'd help us to fix our eyes there. That we would look to Jesus constantly uh, for rescue and for fullness of life. Amen.